Conveyancing Coffee Break, the bite-sized podcast for busy conveyancing professionals, brought to you by Lawshore Insurance. My name is Mandy Brown, and during these episodes, we'll be discussing topical and relevant issues and case studies on a whole raft of conveyancing subjects. Hi, and welcome to episode three of Conveyancing Coffee Break, brought to you by Lawshore Insurance. Joining me today is top presenter and speaker on all things conveyancing, Richard Snape, and Brian Hall, Managing Director of Lawshore. In today's session, we'll be covering more on leasehold dwellings updates and very recent developments. Richard, in the last couple of days, the Building Safety Bill has been mentioned in the media. Can you give us a brief idea of what that's about, please? Yeah, it'll have to be very brief because uh, it's uh, 147 sections and nine schedules and runs to 218 pages. And much of it is sort of marginal to conveyancing. But it's one of uh, several pieces of legislation that follow the Hackett inquiry into the Grenfell disaster in June of 2017. And together with the Fire Safety Act uh, in the other one, which received the Royal Assent uh, on April the 29th this year. Um, the draft bill was published about a year ago in July of last year. Uh, then with the Queen's speech in uh, May the 11th, the government announced that they were going to go ahead with this in this parliamentary year. And then the housing minister, uh, Robert Jenrick, first announced it, as tends to be the case nowadays, on the Andrew Marr show. But uh, the following day, July the 5th, it's uh, July the 6th, the day we're recording this, uh, they uh, laid the legislation in front of the House of Commons and obviously... You know, in the time allotted, I haven't had chance to deal with great detail, and I don't think there's a need to deal with it in great detail for the most part. The one thing that was really in the news, that really pressed home in the news, is that uh, on new builds, generally new build dwellings, they are increasing the limitation periods uh, from 6 to 15 years, the time periods which you can take action against the, primarily the developer or the contractors. That was because of a case uh, last year, a high court case from Manchester called Sports City and Countryside. It's more for the litigators and the, and the tort lawyers and the likes, perhaps, than the conveyances. But in Sports City, it was um, 350 flats in a development in, in Manchester, and they had cladding and various other uh, problems in relation to the, uh, the building, not having fire breaks that they should and the likes. And uh, the claim was under this assumption called Section 1 of the Defective Premises Act of 1972, uh, which states that you have to make the claim within within six years of the works uh, you know, coming to an end, which was in 2010 when completion occurred of this block. Well, then what happened is uh, Sports City, who were the um, purchasers of these flats, they... Um, arranged for remedial work to be done by the, the, the developer Countryside in both 2014 and then Countryside attended because there have been further complaints in 2017 but nothing was done about it. And the High Court decided that uh, in those circumstances your statute barred under the Limitation Act for the original mistakes or the original construction errors because it's six years from the original work's being done. You can make claims against the remedial work within six years, but you're statute barred for the original works. And to some extent, uh, the obvious announcement, the one that got into the national press, is, is remedying that. So in relation to dwellings, you'll have 15 years to bring actions against the developers. And it's going to be retrospective, which is uh, quite odd. Uh, it's obviously going to be a long time before it uh, receives 
the royal assent and there'll be a longer still before they've dealt with all the detail but it will be retrospective so say if you bought a new build house in 2010 and then you know you can bring a claim in 2025 or until 2025 in relation to the works that's the first thing any questions about that well, it seems to me richard that um there's an interesting element creeping in here because you're quite right all of the the changes were driven by the cladding issues that came out of Grenfell. But the whole issue seems to have grown into something much, much bigger in terms of general fire regulations, legislation, and everything else. So what does it mean for insurance particularly, but also for the, the lawyers in terms of what they check into? I think it also in terms of, well, we'll come back to it shortly, but in terms of the people who purchase the flats, because... Uh, that's not just about flats, that's uh, about other areas besides. But uh, it's not a bad idea to have remedial you know, sort of uh, works available for 15 years if you can get it. It's the other part of the legislation which really affects, well, it's, it's, it's a huge piece of legislation that does lots of things. But they've also detailed something called uh, high-risk residential buildings, which are buildings of 18 metres or more in height or seven storeys. In Wales, they can set their own standards, but that's what's going to be the case in England. If it's uh, less than 18 metres in height and seven storeys high, you better pretty short if you're going to buy one of these things anyway but uh, because they uh, are going to be heavily controlled and you, this is you know it's not just about Grenfell it's like you say it's about health and safety generally and there'll be a responsible person who uh, has to report to a regulator and there'll be tenants uh, committees set up who you have to listen to and have regard to their observations and likes in relation to the the 18 meter high buildings and more six stories usually um the one thing, again, I stress this is just a bill, and it's a long time before it goes through Parliament and things can change, but the current legislation says that uh, the person who's responsible, who's the person, person who's responsible for health and safety, ultimately is going to go down to the landlord, can add the cost to service charge, if that's what the lease allows. They will have to look at alternatives at the behest of the tenants, but ultimately it could be the tenants or should, will be the tenants who pay. I think that's the bigger issue. But there's always been an issue with relation to compliance with building regulations. One of the things that came out of Grenfell was the fact that the, the cladding that was installed there didn't comply with the building regulations at the time. Is there now retrospective change and something else that lawyers should be looking well, at? Well, they're, they're going through huge amounts of changes to building regs and they're all down to statutory instruments in the future, so it's a bit early days for that. Rest assured, I'll tell you when we know a bit more. But building regs in relation to fire safety will you know, be basically completely rewritten. But a lot of these things do tend to be sort of retrospective. Um, I was going to say a little bit about the, the latest on the external wall systems, the EWS1 certificates that mortgagees are requiring originally for 18 metres or higher buildings with cladding, which have now, mortgagees are wanting them for buildings that haven't got aluminium composite material, the thing that's got, you know, caused the fire to spread so rapidly in Grenfell, or metallic composite material, a similar kind of thing, but not aluminium. The latest is high-pressure laminate, which they didn't think was a problem. Don't ask me about the technicalities. High-pressure laminate would be completely safe, but for the fact that uh, about 80%, they estimate, the high-pressure laminate has been badly constructed, so it has little gaps where they are uh, air can pass through and spread the fires rapidly. And the one they've now 
uh, and it's in the RIC's uh, new guidance, the Royal Institution of Chartered Surveyors. The one now is, uh, is uh, balconies. They're made of uh, combustible material like timber. And I know for a fact, although there's nothing in the guidance, there's nothing in the EWS1 certificate, as, as people are now doing these inspections for fire safety, they're finding problems that fire breaks should have been produced, you know, built in the, to the, into the building, and then fire breaks haven't been built into the building. But ultimately, all this goes to the surface charge. So, Richard, have there been any developments with EWS1, and in particular with the mortgage companies? Yeah, I did a, a podcast uh, in early May. I think it was, which amongst other things mentioned the EWS1 certificates, these external wall system certificates. Um, but just to give the people who, who don't know, I, obviously I talked about it quite a lot in the um, Zoom conference on leasehold dwellings update because it's the hottest topic of leaseholds at the moment. Taking over quite dramatically from ground rents. It's again, it's post-groundfall. The problem with the EWS1 certificates is there's no statutory sanction for them or control of them. It's just whether the mortgage company says they want them or not. But the background, before we get on to the more recent goings-on, is that um, after Grenfell, valuers started, you know, on well, different mortgage companies and different valuers are saying different things, but people were valuing properties for zero. Uh, if they had uh, aluminium composite material, um, metallic composite material, that doesn't mean to say they're worth nothing. That just means to say the value hasn't got enough information to value them. So back in late 2019, seems a lifetime ago, the Royal Institution of Chartered Surveyors got together with um, uh, UK Finance and uh, the Building Societies Association and agreed these certificates. Originally, this is again sort of mission creep, as we were talking about previously. Originally, they were meant for buildings of 18 metres or more in height, like the building safety bill. That seems to be the, the cutoff for when the there's a high-risk building, uh, as long as you've got at least two dwellings. Lots of people don't realise it applies to mixed-use buildings. Um, and uh, if the valuer said there was cladding on the building and it's potentially dangerous cladding, the mortgagees would insist on one of these EWS ones. Uh, as I've mentioned before, not particularly new. One of the bigger problems is that they have to get these things from the landlord or agents. It's on a building-by-building -building basis, at least in England and Wales. Uh, they have to get them from the landlord or agent. And um, there's 21 recognised qualifications that people can do these things. But certainly less than a year ago, 10 months ago, certainly there were only 290 people who had indemnity insurance to do them. Um, the government is supposed to be setting up its own insurance now, indemnity insurance, and people are getting trained up. But I did see the figures last August of last year, not so, you know, not so long ago. There were, an average wait was 42 months to get one of these things. And the cost was between 6,000 and I've seen up to 50,000 plus just to, to, to do the EWS ones. Um, the government made things worse in January of last year by saying that uh, they might be needed for buildings less than 18 metres in height and with things like high pressure laminate. Which is why, as I mentioned this in the, in the course, the Royal Institution uh, got further guidance for their members, which came in on April the 5th. And the guidance basically... Well, the government was saying it's reduced the number of flats that might need these things to get mortgages by half a million. I can't see how that's the case. They've now said if you've got uh, more than six stories and there's any type of cladding, you need uh, an EWS one. That's the, rec uh, the recommendation. Even if it's safe cladding, you should get one. Uh, or if there are balconies made of combustible materials such as timber stacking on top of one another. If it's five or six stories, five stories, 
was never really intended as a problem. But if it's five or six stories, if more than a quarter of the building's got cladding or there's any aluminium uh, cladding, metallic cladding, high-pressure laminate, or if there's balconies stacking on top of one another, you'd need one of these things. Or lower than five stories if there's aluminium, metallic cladding or HPL, high-pressure laminate. So suddenly they've made three-story buildings officially you know, part of this. Um, the mortgage companies are... Well, that's that that's, was presented as good news, and I have mentioned that before. I'm not sure it is such good news. The mortgage companies uh, are saying different things about uh, their attitude. It's not a problem if you've got 2018 building regs and 2020 building regs completion certificates because there shouldn't be dangerous materials. Not yet, anyway. But uh, and quite a few of the mortgagees are saying if we've got 2018, 2020 in Wales building regs completion certificates, we don't want these things. But uh, with that big proviso, so the new build should stop being a problem. But with that proviso, um, there's huge numbers of fairly low and moderate sized flats that might need these things now. As the mortgage companies, um, I did see from a few of them, sort of Lloyds and Nationwide, who are the two biggest in the country for residential basically saying that we'll take into account the RICS guidance, but we don't feel bound by it. And if our value is on a risk base and case-by-case basis is what Lloyds are saying, I think there should be a, uh, a EWS1 certificate. We'll want one. And people like Santander, who were amongst the more sensible, saying things, you know, we'll, be, we'll follow our value. As originally Santander was saying that if there's no EWS1 in place, then we'll... Um, We'll uh, discuss it with the landlords and the agents, and they seem to have been backpedaling a bit. We desperately need something in the lender's handbook about it. In terms of going back, Richard, to the role of the lawyers in there, are they supposed to form a judgment on whether a property might be above a height limit or otherwise? No, it's not, it's not the lawyer's job, really. It's the valuer's job. But if the valuer says, you know, this is what we want, and the mortgagee goes along with that, as regardless of any guidance or within the guidance, that's what they want. That's the problem with this. There's, there's no statutory control of these EWS1 certificates because it's not statute. I'm sure the Ministry of Housing have got a bit of say behind the scenes. But, uh, you know, if you want a mortgage, then you have to get an EWS1 certificate if that's what the mortgage company says. And the lawyers have no say in it whatsoever. So I'm intrigued, Richard. I mean, what exactly is the role of the lawyer in all of this? I mean, it seems as though if there's a valuer that says the property is okay and it's worth this, then there ought to be a degree of, of comfort. But equally, with the rules changing all the time, what exactly are the lawyers supposed to be doing? The lawyers, there's not too much the lawyers unfortunately can do because it's not really law. It's just a sort of policy thing for the mortgage companies. And I suspect uh, inevitably some valuers are going to err on the side of caution because they'll be footing the bill if anything goes wrong. Hence, you know, that originally no one could uh, become a fire inspector because they couldn't get indemnity insurance because of the degree of risks. I think lawyers can do a few things. One, I would raise inquiry if uh, there was a EWS1 certificate already commissioned for the block because you know, it is on a building-by-building building basis, so I think you need to raise inquiries about that. And I have seen lawyers uh, argue the case with mortgage companies. I came across one, for instance, where it was a three-storey brick building block of flats, which are not that unusual, and the valuers still wanted an EWS1 for a brick building. Apparently, uh, this was news to me, you can have a brick facade with cladding behind it. I know this solicitor told me that she eventually, after much 
discussion and going backward and forward with the mortgage companies. Went down to the premises, took some photographs and sent them off to the mortgage company. And then they decided we don't need these things. So there are a few things like that, but you, you are unfortunately at the whim of the mortgage company. I think the other thing you can do is make sure that your clients are aware Perhaps come to it shortly, a bit later on, but your clients are aware of the potential service charge liability to remove the cladding because it can be immense, not just to remove cladding, but across the board. Yeah, I mean, just back to the surveys, we've seen a, what I thought was the most bizarre one where there was a, a surveyor went out to do an EWS1 survey and the, the property was absolutely fine but three metres away, there was a property that may or may not have been properly clad. There was a commercial office premises, and they raised that during the report. I mean, is that something that lawyers are responsible for looking at? In- no, not really, again, because it's, it's unfortunately, it's, it's pure policy. You know, hence the, the fire inspectors, the fire safety inspectors drawing attention to things like, you know, well, everything seems okay with the cladding, but there aren't the fire breaks they're supposed to be. So you've got to do something about that. And that's not mentioned in the guidance, but it's just sort of, you know, it's sort of mushrooming out of control. And whether you need a mortgage or not, do you really want to buy a property, not just with the health and safety aspects to it, but the service charge liability aspects to it? I've come across one in, in Manchester, in the centre of Manchester. Manchester's got more problems with uh, an aluminium and metallic cladding per population than anywhere, quite quite significantly more. And this one in Connect House, I think I might have mentioned it in the, in the course, where some people have been built. These are just pretty ordinary premises, 130 odd thousand pounds service charge liability to remove the cladding. The worst I've come across, and I'm sure it's not the worst around, was over 180,000 to remove the cladding. That's on an individual flat. And I think you know, it's in the protocol that you're supposed to be telling clients that the nature of service charges and make sure you tell them that the service charges can fluctuate wildly. That's certainly one heck of a wild fluctuation. Yeah. Right. So Richard, how does the Fire Safety Act relate to all the issues we've been discussing? Yeah, the Fire Safety Act is officially, it's uh, just a clarification of various things within the regulatory reform fire safety order, which uh, came in the 2005 order that came in in 2006 and is at the root of a lot of problems because they allowed self-certification uh, for fire safety. It applies to commercial premises, but the common parts of dwellings as well, so obviously blocks of flats. But it didn't make clear at all what the common parts are. If you don't have a satisfactory risk assessment, you're in danger of vitiating your building's insurance. I know Aviva years back when there was still Norwich Union was saying that. Uh, and uh, also, you could be prosecuted. It's the person in control, you know, the person who's responsible. So if it's in a block of flats, it's the landlord. But the actual fire safety order itself didn't say too much other. It didn't say how often they have to be updated and so on. You know, there was no you know, as and when required, really. Um, and that's what the Fire Safety Act, the other bit of post-Grenfell legislation, is all about. It's either all the sent on April the 29th. It's not in force yet and probably won't be for some time because they're going to introduce lots of guidance as to how do these, these things are done. And it's only four or five sections as it stands at the moment. But they've defined what the common parts are for the fire safety assessments. Never the case previously. I think people assumed it was the sort of enclosed common parts. But now, once there's two dwellings in the block, including mixed use, or when it comes into force, I should say, you've got to have a... Uh, fire safety assessment, which includes the exterior of the premises, 
any external doors and windows, balconies, uh, and any internal doors that open into the common parts. So it's quite a, quite a significant shift. I suspect a lot of fire safety risk assessments will be out of date. And the LPE1 forms, uh, I haven't seen anything about what's happening with them, but they will need to be updated. I think it's important when the legislation actually comes into force uh, officially that you find out how up-to-date the fire safety risk assessments are. I think that is probably highly significant for the lawyers because the lawyers have got to report to the mortgage companies if there's no insurance for the building. And if there's not an adequate fire safety risk assessment or it hasn't been implemented, then that won't be you know, there, won't, there won't be adequate insurance. You're not going to get the mortgage anyway. When it was going through the House of Lords, um, the House of Lords suggested an amendment. And it's one of the reasons the Fire Safety Act was so late uh, receiving the Royal Assent because it kept getting backwards and forwards, batted backwards and forwards between the Lords and the Commons. Uh, the amendment they wanted was um, you wouldn't be able to add the costs of these fire safety assessments plus any remedial work to the service charge, but the Commons eventually had their way, so you can, as long as the lease allows it, which almost certainly it will. Again, this is just going to be more and more service charge, even if you don't add the costs. If it's a residence management company, you know, you're the one footing the bill anyway. So we'll have to see the detail of that, but uh, do keep your eyes open on commencement date. You mentioned service charge liability. Won't the government's building safety fund alleviate the problem? Well, I mean, the, the building safety fund uh, was this much vaunted sum of money that uh, they were going to give to the private sector to, to remedy problems. There's also something called a waking watch relief fund. One of the problems is, I suppose, the obvious problem since I, I did the, the video conference is you had to sign up to the building safety fund. It was announced in March the 11th uh, uh, last year. And um, you have to sign up by June the 30th, so it's too late anyway if you haven't signed up. I've come across people who had already done the remedial work. The idea is it pays for the removal of the cladding and the likes. People who've already done the remedial work don't get the benefit of the fund. And there's so many kind of uh, loops to, to sort of jump through. I mean, sort of, they, uh, for instance, before you can apply, you have to see if there's any other ways of getting money back, like an HPC and the likes, you know, which is not a quick thing to do. That's the main reason they, they extended the time periods. Uh, originally, it was meant to come to an end at the end of last year. The Building Safety Fund is several billion pounds, plus there's an aluminium composite material fund quite separately. I did see the statistics not that long ago, you know, sort of, a couple of months, I'm not quite sure, Easter time, April, just after Easter, uh, when of all the people who've made applications, it only applies to 18 metres or more in height buildings. Um, there was something like 2,882 applications and 294 have been successful. That's 22%. And also, it's uh, even if it's four or five, six billion pounds in the fund, then the uh, it's the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, I mean, I've seen figures of at least 15 billion. I've seen the House of Commons Select Committee said 25 billion to remove all the cladding. And some people are putting it later, a lot higher than that. And there are so many, I say, hurdles to cross that uh, the vast majority of people, well, it's too late now anyway. Uh, there's also, you might have come across a waking watchers fund. There's a case I mentioned, actually, a service charge case. There's been several, uh, but the first was from March of 2018 called um, uh, First Port in, in Cityscape, which is all in Croydon. 
Barrett's development, which they found cladding in. And uh, far from being the most expensive, it was going to cost over £2 million pounds to, to replace this cladding. Barrett's decided that uh, they would buy all the flats off the, the owners of the properties the ability to buy the flats back at you know sale price and start all over again but because uh, you can add the cost of service charge because service charges tend to cover not just repairs and maintenance but could estate management which is what this is and that's something a lawyer should be certainly looking at but uh, there was also provision whereby uh, the uh, kind of a common service charge provision that you can charge for compliance with notices required by any competent authority in the fire service has said that if you've got cladding before it gets you know, dangerous cladding before it's replaced you should have these waking watchers you know people who just wander around 24 hours a day checking everything's safe so there's a waking watchers fund that actually ended in, in june the 24th as well you know to apply now it's 30 million pounds. Apparently, the Waking Watchers Fund would cover 400, they, the estimate is 400 blocks of flats, you know, give or take. There's 600 blocks in London alone that need these things. And um, they, uh, it's again, it's the sort of, it's the idea of a fund is you're supposed to not just have these waking watches, apparently many of whom have got no qualifications. That seems to be in state as a fact. Uh, but uh, you can then you know, you don't need these waking watches if you put sensors of a certain type in, you know, throughout the fire detection systems and the likes. So that's uh, the idea of the funds. But they're, they're just the tip of the iceberg. Okay. And then finally, just to finish off, since you did the conference, has anything further happened to ground rents? Well, the one thing that did happen was uh, June the 23rd, um, that uh, this was in the national news this is the escalating ground rent problem and also people being sold, leasehold houses. And the Competition and Markets Authority, uh, the CMA, has been looking into it and they've agreed with Aviva, because Aviva bought a large number of the reversions of these leasehold flats and houses with escalating ground rents, that they, free of charge, will replace the escalating ground rents with an RPI increase. And also uh, Persimmon, if they sold your leasehold house, I've actually seen them doing it for nothing. Leasehold houses, where I am here in Cheshire, they're incredibly common into Merseyside and Greater Manchester and the likes. Lots of the country pretty rare, but uh, I've seen them uh, transfer the freehold to you. And they say they'll transfer the freehold for the same price as you were quoted. They could buy the freehold after two years. Um, so that's, I suppose, the other thing. But I have, there was a St. Fagans near Cardiff, west of Cardiff. I did, I'm sure it was Persimmon who were free of charge, just transferring the freehold of leasehold houses to people. So I suppose that's the other thing. We've still got leasehold reform ground rent bill passing through Parliament, the thing that's, with a few exceptions, going to ban anything but a peppercorn uh, for new leases, residential leases of more than 21 years. But that's still winding its way through Parliament. But that's about it, really. Hmm, thanks. So there's a lot going on. Well, thank you, Richard and Brian, for a most entertaining and useful session. My pleasure. See you again next time. Thanks, Richard. Okay. Thanks. You have been listening to another episode of Convancing Coffee Break, the only podcast for busy convincing professionals, brought to you by Lawshore Insurance, the UK's leading provider of title insurance. For more information on our free conferences, go to www.lawshoreinsurance.co.uk where you can download recent conference recordings.